it's time to turn out the lights, grab some popcorn, and watch some horrible horror movies. This is the Terrible Terror Podcast. Each episode, I delve into the world of terrible horror movies. Why do I do it? Well, I can't really explain it, but I love these horrible movies. So if you've made a horror movie on your phone, or made your own special effects MacGyver style, please, send it my way. Now, what do you get when you pair the master of horror with George A. Romero? While you get the multi-storied horror classic, Creepshow. Welcome to another episode of the Terrible Terror Podcast. We're a third of the way through Stephen King month, and that means we only got one movie left, which you're going to hear about at the end of the episode. Now, of course, this one, we're going to be talking about Creepshow. Now, Creepshow is kind of a weird thing. In the last episode, I did mention that there was uh, at least one more screenplay that was written by Stephen King. And it is true that it is uh, the film that we're going to be talking about next week, But, in terms of the timeline of everything, uh, Creepshow really came first. So, this was the first time that he'd ever written a screenplay for anything. And, of course, uh, this has a big ensemble cast. It's an anthology film. So, we have what we have here, I should say, uh, is a film bookend by a prologue and an epilogue. And then you have five stories of varying length within the film. Uh, And it goes from anywhere from about, I think the shortest one is probably about 20 minutes long-ish to the longest one, which is about 40 minutes long. And they're all pretty well done, to be honest with you. I'm going to kind of get that out of the way. And this is one of those weird films where maybe, for me, there were a couple of nostalgia blinders about how bad it actually was. But looking back at it now, it's not a terrible film. Uh, and you'll see that as we talk about each section. There are, of course, always things you can kind of nitpick on, but the way that I'm kind of going to approach it is the way that I did uh, a Christmas horror story. If you listened to that episode way, way, way back ago, we're going to look at each story individually, and then at the end, I'm going to come together, I'm going to bring everything into one giant thing. Now, the prologue and the epilogue are something a little different, because they're really more like bookends to the entire film. So there's no reason to really go into it and be like, oh, this is its own story, and and do that like at the beginning, but no, we're just going to focus on the first one. And unlike A Christmas Horror Story, where that one was kind of weaved in between itself... These are definitely five standalone stories. Uh, and it's it's interesting because they do vary in quality, but it's not like a film like, say, VHS, where, not necessarily VHS, um, 
like the ABCs of horror, right? Even though that's still kind of a bad example of maybe that's a better than VHS, where VHS is an anthology film, all of them pretty much are, but they're relatively directed by the same person. You really don't get differences in between them, where something like the, you know, the ABCs of death, each letter is directed by somebody different, and it brings a different style to it. This is all completely directed by George A. Romero, and even though there is a like a, a cohesion to everything, you can feel how they all kind of feel the same. At the same time, each film is or story is done differently uh, and has a different feel than the other story before it. From ones that are probably a little more serious than maybe they need to be. To others that are a lot more light-hearted than they need to be. Uh, so you're going to experience the different stories as they are, as little standalone things. And then we'll kind of bring it back together at the end of the whole podcast review thing. So uh, what else can I tell you uh, about this film? Other than they were all shot in, on location in Pittsburgh and its suburbs, including uh, Monroeville, uh, where Romero leased an old boys' academy to build extensive sets for the film. And you can kind of feel that. And there is there is something that shows up at least in every single uh, episode. you got to look for it uh, pretty strangely. And the only one I couldn't find it in, and I bet you it's in there, is in the second story. And this is also kind of an homage to those old EC and DC horror comics that you used to see, like Tales from the Crypt or House of Mystery, House of Secrets, The Vault of Horror, you know, those types of comics, which were very popular back in the day, uh, especially Tales from the Crypt, which ultimately got its own TV show, uh, which was, of course, Tales from the Crypt, which was on HBO. Uh, and you can see where the similarities lie, especially with the creep. Uh, was kind of one of them I'm going to call him, the Creeper, uh, which is the skeletal figure that you see at the beginning of the film and is animated through parts of the film. Uh, the other thing that I thought was really cool, and maybe I'll talk about it a little more uh, towards the end as well, but I kind of want to get it off my chest right away, is the way that uh, things are framed. It's really framed like a comic book. They have these really cool like little uh, pages. Sometimes when you go into certain scenes, you'll see like a comic book frame. Uh, maybe two characters are talking in this scene by phone, and it's split like a comic book page. It's really neat. And uh, there's also like in between each of them, when they give you the title of what the next story is going to be, there are ads that you see. And I wish those parts actually had stayed there a little longer than they actually did. But... As I digress with this, it's still kind of a neat experience. I just wish maybe it had been a little bit more expanded upon or allowed you to actually read a couple things. Because without pausing some of this stuff, I wouldn't have been able to see what was going on. But there were also pieces of, uh, like, not necessarily the story, but pieces from the prologue that you see within these scenes that have an ultimate effect on the ending, which is pretty neat in itself uh the other big thing i think comes down to really the uh the way that it was you're going through just one comic book too it wasn't like it was multiple it kind of felt like it would be multiple ones but based upon the beginning of the film it's pretty much just one set story where we get into it so without further ado let's go ahead and get into the prologue we're introduced uh, to a house where we hear a father scolding his son. I told 
told you before, I didn't want you to read this crap. I never saw such rotten crap in my life. Where do you get this shit? Who sells it to you? I'm talking to you, young man. You want to answer me when I'm talking to you. You remember who puts the friggin' bread on the table around here, don't you? Stan, don't be too hard on him. All the kids read him. My boy isn't all the kids. Want to know where this is going, Billy? In the garbage. Right into the friggin' garbage. Now, you got any smart mouth about that? And of course the kid does. When we're introduced into this kid, Billy, here, uh, it's funny to say that that's actually Stephen King's son, Joe. Uh, doing the little bit role of the son of the family. And it's amazing when you think about it, because when you see Billy for the first time, you go, yep, that is definitely Stephen King's son. Like, there's no denying that that ain't his child, right? Like, he went on Maury, and it'd be 100%. It's not even 99% uh, proof positive. It's 100%. That is your son, because he looks exactly like you. Especially when we go into talking about the second uh, story in the the mix of these five. The other thing that I get kind of weirded out with this movie overall is the language. And I'm not talking about like them swearing or saying weird things. But the biggest thing about the language that I have with this film is that sometimes they go and they're like, shit, fuck, uh, blah, blah, blah. But then they'll say like, friggin'. And you're like, what? Like, why Why would you just randomly censor that? Why don't you... If you're going to say shit, why don't you say fuck? Like, why don't you go through with it? And there's a one that's glaring that's later on that we'll get into. Uh, where, honestly, I think it got 80 yard over what was originally said. And I have a feeling of what the actual word was. And maybe it was a little too harsh for the studio. And, of course, this is 1982. So, you're not expecting things to be, like, super, super you know, heavy with the, uh, you know, abrasive language, as some might say. So, he goes ahead and he takes the, the comic book, The Father, and he throws it outside, and when he comes back, he is very impressed with himself, because this is why God made fathers. That takes care of that. Stan, don't you think you were? Well, a little hard on him. You see that crap? All that horror crap? Things coming out of crates and eating people? Dead people coming back to life. People turning into weeds, for Christ's sake. Well, yes, I did, but I... Well, you want them reading that stuff? Well, no, but... All right, then. I took care of it. That's why God made fathers, babe. That's why God made fathers. So, if you got a glimpse of it there, he actually uh, detailed a couple of the stories that we're going to talk about. And we'll, I'll not really go into it right now, because we're about to jump into the very first story, which is called Father's Day. Now, this story revolves around a man named Nathan Graham. And Nathan Graham, well, he was, let's say, killed off by his daughter, Bedelia. Who's coming out, Cass? You mean Cass hasn't told you about dotty old great-aunt Bedelia, the patriarch of our clan? Isn't she the one that was supposed to have... Well... Supposed to have murdered her father. Yes. Now, the weird thing about this family, where they're kind of talking gossip about everything, but... Uh, lo and behold, they all believe that she fucking did it, and they're okay with it. Uh, and the other thing that you got to notice in this one, and in another episode, well, another story 
of this film is that uh, they've got some decent actors, uh, at least now you know them maybe as decent actors, or they could have been back then, but they're kind of early roles, and it seems like that stereotype of people, when they get into acting, they just work in horror in the beginning, and then they go on to do great things. So in this one, who do we have but none other than Ed Harris? He plays the uh, newly son-in-law or whomever is married to Cass who's asking the question, well, what the hell are you guys talking about? So you see him, and then we've got some other people that we'll talk about later in other stories. So now they're all kind of sitting around, and they start talking about Bedelia. You see, Bedelia has an interesting backstory uh, where her father, well, he was kind of an asshole. Bedelia is my aunt, which means that she's Richard and Cass's great aunt, which also means that she's older than God. But her father, Nathan Grantham, was even older and meaner than that. Oh, a bunch of dirty fighters just waiting to get your hands on my money. <laughs> he was hysterically jealous of Bedelia all his life. Complete Freudian relationship. Then when he was about 184, he had a stroke. And lucky Bedelia, she got to nurse him full time. Now, I'm not sure what type of Freudian relationship that they're really talking about. That's kind of one of those things where I think they just throw out some type of terminology. And you're just kind of like, okay, yeah, I get it. Because if anything, I think of like an Oedipal type of relationship. Which wouldn't necessarily apply here since it's not the son wanting to be with the mother, but the exact opposite. Uh, I'm pretty sure that there are, you know, some things that Freud has said, maybe talking about his dreams or whatever. Uh, but for the for the most part, it seems that she did have somebody that she eventually fell in love with, but the father had him killed. And the reason why is because he wanted to make sure that she was uh, taking care of him and not necessarily having her own type of life, which led Bedelia to become more of a spinster. See, it's weird because you have this older patriarch that's telling the story of Bedelia, and then you have her niece and her nephew, who also happen to be the great niece and nephew of Bedelia. But I don't know where the relationship is. Like, this, the lady that's talking, she's definitely not the uh, daughter of Bedelia. I kind of thought so in the beginning, but it turns out that, no, it's not really that when you listen to them explain it a little more. So. We've got her and these other two, and I don't know where the relationship goes from. Now, this could be just maybe a writing error, or maybe within the takes, they accidentally said something, this take worked the best, and so now we've got this weird relationship where I don't know who the mom of these two are, nor do I know who the mom of this person is. And it kind of sucks, because if there were more people that were involved uh, with Aunt Bedelia... Uh, that, you know, they could have helped take care of the dad, too, when, you know, he was kind of, well, obviously being a dick. So, we go through and we find out that on every Father's Day, Bedelia goes and she visits her father's grave, basically kind of to deal with the fact that she killed him and to rest her own spirits. And now, every Father's Day... Every single Father's Day since his death, for seven long years, she returns to this house, the scene of her crime. So she comes, but she shows up late, like I said, and she goes right to the grave. 
And we do get a kind of look at her when she gets over there. She pulls up smoking a cigar and you're kind of like, well, maybe she's crazy. Maybe she's not. I mean, she's just smoking a cigar and driving a car. I mean, what makes you think that she's crazy because she's doing that? Uh, But it's when she gets to the graveyard and she starts looking at uh, her father's gravestone at the distance that all of a sudden the voices of him come back in her head. So that's where we get one of the really interesting framing styles when we look into the cake. And we go kind of into her memories at that point of when she actually killed her father. And we see that the uh, the cook that was in the kitchen, she was kind of cool with it too. Like, everybody was cool with it. That's kind of the weird thing that's going on here. Everybody knows that she did it. Nobody's trying to be like, they're trying to be like gossipy that she did it. But at the same time, they're like, yeah, but it's... It's cool. Like, the guy was a dick. He deserved to die. He fucked up her life, and you might as well just let her kill him. So, we go through this kind of scene, and we see her pick up the ashtray, and we see her bash him in the head, and there's just a horrible, like, blow. Like, when she hits him, nothing really happens, and then he falls on the floor, and he's completely covered in blood. So, it's one of those, like, low-budget, like, interesting like you can see where they've used it later and we also get a look back at the cake as well and there's a bunch of red frosting on it that's been kind of squeezed and the way that it's been like kind of fell on the cake looks kind of like intestines uh which is neat i think it's probably not something that they meant to do but i thought it looked kind of neat and maybe it had something to do with the story in general so we go back to present day And we see Bedelia, and she's starting to sit down at her father's grave, and she begins to have a monologue with herself. Well, more like a one-way conversation with her dead father. God, I didn't know I had it in me. (laughs) I'm your daughter, right, you bootlegger? Kill a murder! Ungrateful bastard. Shouldn't have killed Peter, you know. He was a man, right, a real man, see? Everything I wanted, he wanted for me. You stupid bastard. You screwed it all up. You screwed up my mother. You screwed me up. You got me so mad. Drove me crazy. I want my cake, Padilla! You bitch! You called me a bitch! Sylvia fixed it all! Ashtray back in place, chair overturned. Took a fall, Daddy, bad fall. Nobody could catch us, nobody. You taught me. You taught Sylvia. You taught us all. So with that, she starts hitting the bottle rather hard. And of course, she accidentally drops it down, and then it begins spilling into the grave. And my initial thought was, oh god no, please don't let booze be the reason that he comes back. And he comes back from the dead. Here comes good old dad, and he's asking for his goddamn cake. 
his Father's Day cake. Still, after seven years of being in the fucking ground, here he is, still wanting that goddamn cake, and he ends up killing Bedelia. We cut back over uh, to the house, and we see that there's some really bad dancing being done by Ed Harris and his uh, lovely wife, Cass, or girlfriend, or whatever the fuck she is. I don't know what she is. I don't really care either. And he decides, okay, I'm going to leave the house. Now, he did this earlier in the film, too, after he left the house. And I'm not talking about him leaving. But he does this weird thing with his, uh, with a match and a cigarette. The way he lights it, like he puts it, I don't know how to explain it. You have to watch it in the film. It really bothered me for some reason, and I don't know why. But it was like he had it with inside of his palm or something like that. And then he lit it and then he slowly dragged it up to the cigarette to light it up. I don't know. Like I said, you got to go and you got to watch it and kind of give me an opinion of what you think. Uh, it's kind of just really odd to me and I just don't know why. So, he, of course, he goes outside and he decides to go towards the graveyard to see if he can catch up with Bedelia because his wife, she's getting hungry and she can't stand it anymore. And blah, blah. Of course, you know, everybody in the family after good old dad has died uh, are fucking brats and assholes. So, of course, she wants to eat and uh, sends Ed to go get Bedelia. And he goes over to the grave and he notices that, uh, you know, there's nothing really there. He falls over into the grave, perfectly on his back, after he gets startled. And then there's a headstone that slowly starts, like, inching forward every time he tries to move, uh, like it's going to fall on top of him. And, of course, as he's slowly trying to get up, there we see the corpse of Bedelia. At least her arm, uh, that we can see. And he's, again, still trying to get out of there. And that's when dear old dad, Nathan, shows up as his skeletal remains. And might I say, from a distance, it's not a bad costume. But up close, it's a terrible fucking costume. Because you can see with the head and you see the blackness of the, like, the breathing part in the mouth. And you can see it move. Like, the skeleton doesn't really move uh, much when he talks. And I get it, it's 1982, but at the same time, I've seen Tom Savini do much better work with makeup, and he really does make up for it in other parts of the movie. No pun intended, please. I really wasn't trying there. But uh, there's some really great things that he does, uh, especially in the third one, and even some of the stuff that pops up in the second one, and uh, as we get on towards the end of the film, one specific spectacular one that's at the end of the film especially for 92 and i love tom savini's work so it's weird to see that we have this where it looks even for 1982 really fucking fake and maybe that's just kind of this is more maybe a little more of a light-hearted type of thing and that's what they wanted to get the feel for this one so he does uh ed harris his character hank does see the father up there and then we find out the father's got other powers. He's not just undead. He can move shit with his mind. Because he's able to take the tombstone and make it fly down and basically squash the head of Hank. Poor Hank. Very first one to die. And you're not even part of the fucking family. And especially with the way that this episode ends. Or this story, I should say. So then we go back over to the house. And Cass, of course, she's still hungry. And she's wondering, where the fuck is Hank? Where is he? My dear, I really couldn't say. No doubt he's still out of the grave hobnobbing with your Aunt Bedelia. Getting her side of the story, I expect. Well, I want him. And I want my dinner. I'm hungry. 
Well, go get him then. You go, Richard. He's your husband. I don't even like him. I'll go and get him. After all, he's such a sweet boy. Okay, do you guys get some type of sexual tension between uh, dear old Auntie here and Hank? I mean, she is definitely, like, got the hots for him, especially the way that she ended that conversation there. And what's up with everybody wanting to fucking eat something in this family? I'm hungry. I want my dinner. Oh, I want my cake. It's fucking Father's Day. I'm going to come back from the dead and kill people because I didn't get my fucking Father's Day cake. What the hell? This family is just a bunch of rich, rude sons of bitches, to be honest. And, of course, we know that Nathan made his money by being an asshole. Uh, basically, extortion and murder and those types of things, as uh, you know, told by Bedelia in her monologue. So mom goes out to the kitchen and all of a sudden everything just turns really blue. Like, really blue. It's weird. I know it's meant to kind of simulate that it's in the dark and that the lights have all been turned out in this one part of everything. And But the set is so weird because it just goes from super light in like the kitchen and dining room areas to being just weirdly, oddly blue. I'm not sure why they decided to take that route, but here we go. So she goes in there and she's looking around, kind of gets startled, but then, and there's like a kind of a decent jump scare that happens when you discover the dead body of the cook. Uh, And she kind of slams against one of the doors and then she's interrupted by dad, of course, wanting cake. We then cut back over into the dining room and we see uh, that Cass, she's still hungry and she's wondering, well, where's, I guess, this auntie and her husband? Where is she? And where the hell is Hank? Go see Richard, please. Please. Look, my darling sister, he is your hit. Husband, I mean. You go look for him. Richard, I'm scared and it's dark out there. Look, I just want to get another bottle of wine, okay? Please, Richard. All right. Come on. Come on. Before I continue, I forgot to make a comment on this, but if you really wanted a Father's Day cake, even if you came back from the dead, why would you kill the cook? Like, can you... Are you able to make your own? Because the whole thing was that you were kind of like bedridden, not necessarily bedridden, but you were in a wheelchair and you were a crotchety old man that just slammed down his cane and wanted his goddamn cake from his daughter. That why would you kill the cook if you're still coming back from the dead looking for your cake? Makes no sense to me. I mean, you want cake. They make cake. Then you can have your goddamn cake, right? Leave the cook fucking alive. Plus, but she, I guess, was one of the ones that helped cover everything up, according to Bedelia's story uh, earlier on. So, uh, the brother here, the nephew, um, he's just basically saying, hey, look, I'm just a drunk, I'm here for the booze, and decides to, though, eventually help Cass find everybody. So they go into the kitchen, where they're also surprised at how blue everything has now turned. They look around, they can't find anything, then they see a little bit of blood, and that's where we get to see them being interrupted by dear old dad, who now has his cake, which is the head of, not Bedelia, but their aunt that uh, went looking for everybody. Father's Day, and I 
got my cake. Happy Father's Day. <laughs> So that's one good way to get revenge. We end the whole story with a frame shot of it being turned into a comic with him holding the cake uh, there. And now it's possible that it actually is Bedelia's head and I'm thinking that it's the other lady's head, but I'm not quite sure. But I like the effect of the cake. Like the whole look of it is really fucking cool. Uh, and you can see where they spent some of the makeup on this versus the makeup on the damn skeleton. Uh, we also don't really know what the fate of the two, uh, the nephew and the niece are, but I hear that when after this movie was done, they made a comic book, and that has a more clear-cut type of ending uh, to this story. So, we'll see. I guess you could check it out, but from here, it's just kind of left open. Uh, maybe he wants them to share in the cake, and uh, he realizes that they're just okay people. But then again, why would you kill Hank if he has nothing to do with whatever went on? Uh, I don't know. Maybe they needed more like grinding to make the you know the the flour for the cake or some some stupid shit like that. But from there we go to the most famous story uh, in this film. And now there, it's not necessarily the best, but it's the one I think that Creepshow gets the most attention for, and maybe gets the notoriety of being truly horrible. Because, of course, we get to watch Stephen King act. Yes, the next one in this film is the lonesome death of Jordy Verrill. And this is all basically just Stephen King acting with, you know, there, there's somebody that plays his father and somebody plays his doctor within this scene. Uh, and it's interesting to say the least now the biggest thing is that king went into this trying to play an extreme slack-jawed yokel and to some extent he does succeed but his facial expressions are so more like somebody with autism than somebody that is a redneck and or a, like a stereotypical redneck. Though, I think he does kind of have the talking down. And especially the way that he, he goes through and he mentions things. Like when he first sees the meteor. That's a meteor. I'd be dipping shit if that ain't a meteor. Now, supposedly this story was based on a short story of Stephen King's called Weeds. And Jordy here, you know, he... He's very dim-witted, and he does find a an asteroid that does, you know, smash into the ground. And right away, he decides that he's going to begin, you know, trying to poke at it with a stick, and then he ultimately touches it with his hand, which uh, causes him to kind of get like an electric shock. After he's been kind of shocked by that meteor, he thinks, maybe I can actually get something because he owes money on a mortgage. And of course, he decides, what would the local college actually pay him for it. I wonder how much they'd pay for it up the college. Wonder how much they wonder how much they'd pay for it up the college. Well fine one, Mr. Barrel. Uh-huh. How does fifty dollars sound? Not a cent less than two Hundred bucks. Seventy-five. Two hundred. 
Anita Verrill didn't raise no idiots. Keep a count. Not a cent less than 200. My meteor, my price. Of course, nothing less than 200. Now, why 200, do you ask? Well, because he has a bank loan that he needs to pay back, which happens to be exactly $200. So, of course, this is the best way for him to get his money, right? And the the other thing I should mention right now is that everything in this story is extremely cartoonish. Like, it has that type of air to it. Between the noises that get made... From the framing of when he has his little daydreams of talking with the college, as well as a doctor later on, to when he just, like, plays with the meteor, you get feel these little weird, like, sounds that would belong in, like, a Looney Tunes film. It's a really interesting choice, and for this story, it kind of makes sense, especially when you're trying to look at him as kind of, like I said, like a slack-jawed yokel, right? So... It, it makes sense in the way that they're doing it, and he, he obviously doesn't have very good luck with everything as he's talking about, you know, going from looking at the meteor to when he takes water because he decides, you know, he's going to go sell that meteor, so he needs to cool it off, so he throws some water on the meteor, which, of course, splits it. Oh, you done it now, Jordy Verrill. You monkhead. Two hundred dollars for a broken media, Mr. Bell. You must be joking. I wouldn't give you two cents. Jordy Verrill, lunkhead. Verrill luck's always in. You spell that kind of luck, B-A-D. So we also noticed that on his skin, he's slowly starting to grow like little green patches on his fingers. Well, at least when you first look at them, they just look like bumps, right? And the the makeup, I think, there is pretty good, especially for 1982. Uh, also, when you look at the meteor that's on the ground, when it's split, it's got some weird ooze inside of it. And like the smart guy that Jordy here is, he decides to pour that ooze directly into the ground so he can take those two parts of the meteor and go ahead and go back and sell them. Now, as he comes back into his house, he puts the meteor inside, and he sits down to watch his favorite program, which of course is pro wrestling. Because if you're going to be a stereotypical redneck in a horror film, you gotta love pro wrestling. That's just like a requirement. You know, you got to believe in it and you got to really enjoy it. So, of course, as he's doing so and he's drinking his beer, he notices that the stuff is really growing on his hands. That's when he decides to call the doctor. When he calls, when he gets to the phone, he doesn't really want to call it because he's afraid that the doctor is going to chop his fingers off. Now, I was going to play it, but it's not a very long scene and it's not a very dialogue scene. It's more facial expressions and the fact that he gets a butcher's knife to go out there and basically chop his fingers off, which we never really see. He just wakes up right before that that's actually going to happen. And of course, the person that plays the doctor is the same person that played the college professor, and as the same person that eventually plays his father. Because as the thing starts growing more and more on top of him, he just gets to the point where everything is just itching, and the only way he can think that he can basically calm the itching is by jumping into a tub of water but before he does his father somehow shows up on the mirror to basically tell him hey don't do it 
Three years, almost. You ain't gonna get in that top, are you? Stop water there at once, Jordy. Touch your neck. You'll get in that water, Jordy. You might as well sign your death warrant. I'm a goner already, Daddy. Ain't I? Got the stuff out of that meteor on me. And I'm gone. Ain't I? Now, it's kind of weird because there's a couple different trains of thought of what actually happened here. Either he finally just succumbed to the fact that he's itching so much, or he just realized, hey, basically, I'm going to die anyway, so might as well just jump in the water and just accelerate it and get it done with, which is basically what he does. We fade to black and fade to the next morning. And then we see him, and he's sitting over in a corner. His entire house has been covered in whatever this alien vegetation is. And we see him in the corner, and he's talking to himself. And he basically wants some of that good luck for once to help end his life. Please, 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 God, let my luck be in just this once. Please, God. Just this once. And in today's weather... We then pan from the quarter, he's blown his head off, and we see that the rest of the house has been completely covered in whatever this green shit is, as a weather report comes on the news and begins to talk about how there's going to be rain. We pan out of the house and we see that his farm is completely covered by this alien vegetation. And with signs pointing to Portland, Maine and to Boston, we know that this alien menace is going to spread throughout the planet, basically, because the rains are coming. And that's the end of the second story of the film. A lot shorter. It's probably the shortest of all of the, the five that are in this film. And now we're going to get into one more of the longer ones Uh, which is called Something to Tide You Over. This story begins with a young, and I mean really young, Ted Danson sitting on a couch. And there's a knock at his door. And who happens to be there? Why, it's Leslie Nielsen. Now, before I get into the little clip, uh, it's Leslie Nielsen. Like, I can't believe that he's actually in this movie because if you grew up when I grew up, you would basically know him for things like Police Squad and The Naked Gun and Dracula Dead and Loving It, which is probably one of my favorite spoofs on the, the whole vampire genre. Uh, it's weird to see him. Now, I've seen uh, The Thing from Another Planet where it's, you know, and if you haven't seen it, it's what The Thing, uh, the John Carpenter film is based on. Well, The Thing is a remake of The Thing from Another Planet, but he did take some liberties there. Uh, to basically make one of the best sci-fi horror movies that have ever been created. But we'll talk about that movie at another time. So, The Thing from Another Planet was really one of Leslie Nielsen's earlier films, and he plays a very straight character, and he did that for a very long time. And here, well, let's play the clip and let's see how he plays this role. 
Now, mind you, this clip is after he's knocked on the door. He's put his foot in between the door and the wall, and he's trying to get Ted Danson to talk to him. That may work on TV, mister, but I can bench press 300 pounds. You better get your foot out of the door. You're going to lose about half of it. Don't call me, mister. You know damn well who I am, so let's not play any games, huh? Come on, get out of here. You listen to me, Harry, and listen carefully. Unless you let me in and talk to me, something very nasty is going to happen to Rebecca. So nasty that your little mind can barely conceive of it. So if you haven't guessed it already, he is the villain of this story. And oh my god, does he do an excellent fucking job. Like, it's crazy how much I like. There are two characters in this film that I love. I absolutely love. And out of the left field, Leslie Nielsen is my favorite favorite in this whole freaking movie and it's the way that he does things now is he a little over the top at times yes but not when it needs to be when and it's really more towards the end when he needs to be that kind of crazy serious type of guy he's excellent and he even is excellent when he changes the subject like when he finally convinces harry ted danson's character to let him inside the house by basically threatening his what you find out to be his either his wife or his lover i think it's his wife rebecca basically her life because you see he knows that harry and rebecca have been banging it out right they're basically there uh harry is the white knight in shining armor that's going to release rebecca from richard who is leslie nielsen's character uh from whatever clutch he has on them and of course you know Harry, he tries to play it sly in the beginning. What did you mean when you said something nasty was going to happen? Well, you really should take better care of this equipment. At least get a maintenance cartridge and dust off the heads. Talk to me right now. Take your hand off me right now. See, he just plays this role so well, even like jumping between subjects. It's weird when you see him. And then even when... Harry is kind of threatening him too. He's again kind of like a cool cucumber, and it honestly, it's really fucking entertaining to watch. You talk to me, you son of a bitch. I'm gonna kill you. Well, you kill me, and you'll never find out. Now don't get naughty, Harry. If I fall down on this floor and hit my head on that hard marble, well, I could fracture my skull. That would be fine with me. Yeah, and then you'll never know. And believe me, Mister True Love, you want to know because by eleven this morning it's going to. So, Richard goes ahead and gets Harry to come along with him with the threat that something is going to happen to Rebecca if he doesn't do it. As well as telling him, hey, you're going to be able to see her uh, if you come along with me and we'll just make sure that everything goes as planned. Because, hey, you can trust me, I always keep my promises. Which, in turn, you know that something bad is going to happen. So he takes him to the beach, and this is his private beach. His house is just a couple ways down, and he owns a lot of the land around here. And he tells him, go look at what I've done over there. Well, you don't know if he's done it, but he says, go look at the hole. And of course, that's when Harry turns around and he realizes, maybe he can take this shovel and he can take him down. You notice how the water creeps in? Even when the tide's out, the water creeps in. I don't know what the hell you think... Now look, this has gone 
Just about far enough. <laughs> no, Harry. Not nearly far enough. Now, if you're thinking of becoming a hero, I suggest that you remember the lady fair. So he he's basically pointing a gun at him because he's got the upper hand right now. And he gets poor old Harry to jump into the hole. And when he does that, he basically says, I want to, you know, I'm not going to kill you. But what I want to do is, is I want to incapacitate you. I want to kneel down and start pulling the sand into the hole. Uh-uh. No way. Go ahead, shoot me if you want to. You're not going to bury me alive. Not a bad idea. Not exactly what I had in mind, though. All I want to do is incapacitate you, then you can see Becky. I don't believe you. I always keep my promises, Harry. And I do have the gun, don't I? So Harry does try to get out where Richard then shoots a warning shot to the side of Harry... And Harry eventually gives in and decides to start covering himself with the sand. Now, we get some really cool scenes where (laughs) Richard basically is kind of torturing poor old uh, Harry. Well, I want to call him old. Poor young Harry, I guess. uh, Who now is up to his neck within the sand. You see, he, he leaves him there for a while. And when he comes back... Uh, there's, it's kind of a funny scene where we've got a crab that's coming up to him and he tells him, Hey dude, you know, the crab just wanted to get revenge for all the times that you went out and you had dinner at that expensive restaurant with my wife. Uh, (laughs) to which of course, Harry responds with money. Look, I have money. I'll give you anything. Just get, just get me out of this hole. All right. Well, I have something here, Harry. Take your mind off of it. Come on, Richard, please. It's showtime! (laughs) Becky? That great video? I love this stuff. Now, just look at the quality of that picture, Harry. Somebody! Becky? No! Becky! Can't hear you. I'm sorry. She lost a coin toss. I had to bury her further down the beach. Oh. Couldn't even leave her a monitor. Would have shorted out by now. No, no. No, that's a trick. You son of a bitch! That's some uh, some kind of uh, special effects trick, isn't it? If you just take a look at the VCR back there. Oh, I'm sorry. You can't turn your head. Let me assure you, Harry, the VCR is not on play. It's on record. I'm going to save this stuff. Two, you're a part of my whole movie. You're insane. Oh, don't be lying now. Not lying at all. Oh, so he keeps home movies of these types of things? Like, hey, what do you guys want to watch tonight? Do you want to watch the time I killed your mom uh, by burying her head up to the sand until the water came and made her drown? Or do you want to watch the time I used the piano wire on that one dude? Hey, how about that one time that we went to Disneyland and we saw that guy get his head ripped off on It's a Small World? You know, that weird monster came in because he was tired of the fucking music. It was just all the time was, it's a small world. And he's, and they went in and he started ripping off people's heads. And I managed to catch it on video. Remember that good home movie? No? Okay, we'll just watch one the time when I killed your mom and her lover. Let's just continue on with it. Who the hell keeps kind of home movies like this? And honestly, though, as maddening as it is, this is a pretty ingenious plan. Because the idea is, is that, hey... We're going to bury you up to your neck. And then we're going to wait for the tide to come in. And when the tide comes in, it's going to give you a chance. A decent chance. Maybe not the best chance in the world. 
But for you to, you know, when the sand gets a little saturated, to be able to move and wiggle your way out of there, uh, as long as you can hold your breath, and then maybe because of the tide, you can get out of there before you die. It's not a bad idea because if they're smart enough, maybe they can actually survive. But of course, you know, these people are probably not going to survive. Though, so Richard then decides after he's left poor Harry in the water and after showing uh, him on screen, which he promised to do. He said if he did the things that he did, he would show him Rebecca. And here you go. He's showing him Rebecca. But he goes back to his house to watch them both die on his closed circuit TV thing, which is weird, I guess. He managed to have all these fucking cameras set around, and it makes me wonder how she got caught. Like, did you not realize that there's so many goddamn cameras around, or do you have, like, a private iPhone? There's a couple things like that that I kind of want to know and I kind of want to see, but at the same time, we don't really necessarily need it because we just need to focus on what's going here. And the fact of the matter is, is the water is coming, and it's slowly covering Harry's head, and it does short out the TV. And it makes me wonder two things. Uh, How is power getting to the TV and to the camera that's being set up on him? Because uh, we do see cables in the sand, so maybe they're like long stretch cables, but wouldn't eventually those with the electricity current going in them, unless they were really well wrapped, uh, shock the shit out of him first before he fucking does, like, you know drowns and then secondly uh the fact that you know the tv does short out based upon the water and nothing happens to the poor guy uh it's weird i i just wish that maybe i I, for the way the film goes i get it but at the same time i wish that maybe they had thought about something to do with that so richard back at home he's watching his closed circuit television and he sees harry on the screen And Harry vows that he's going to get him, and Richard gives him some of his best advice. Richard! I'm gonna get you. You hear me, Richard? You hear me, Richard? I'm gonna get you! I'm gonna hold your breath there, Harry. Gotta hold your breath. Now, I have to admit, I'm very impressed with both the actress that plays Rebecca and Ted Danson here, because they're really buried into the sand at wherever they're buried at. Uh, They're not necessarily buried, you know, that deep. Maybe their head's just through a prop or something like that. But they are getting the waves pushed over their face while they're doing these scenes. And imagine how many takes that that's got to take, right? The guys, I I know I couldn't do it, sitting there and just having wave after wave of water, having to pretend to spit it out. Well, not really pretend, because it is hitting me in the face. Maybe I accidentally choked once or twice. Maybe a crab that they decided to have on set one day, it did fly and did pinch you in the fucking nose. Or worse, maybe you got some, like, you know... Uh, A hermit crab decided that, hey, your skull is the best place to make my new home and tried to take you away with it. Who knows? But it's still, I give props to those two for actually doing these scenes. And they look really good and realistic. Uh, And uh, like I said, uh, I know I couldn't do it. And it's amazing that those two were able to do so. Back in the house, uh, Richard, he decides to leave because he needs to go pick up his equipment, right? He decides that... Hey, I really want that TV that's now been completely damaged by the water, which makes absolutely no sense to me. Maybe he's just trying to cover up his tracks and not necessarily... 
Because he does give it a good look over, like, hey, can I still salvage this? Can I still use it? I mean, it's probably worth a good deal of money, maybe at a pawn shop somewhere. But he doesn't pick up the camera, he doesn't fucking take it anywhere. And he owns the whole beach. He even said to them that you can scream as much as you want. Which is the second time that type of thing has happened. Well, actually, no, we're about to get to the second time, I'm sorry. This is the first time that that line has been used, but it will be used again. Um... So he gathers everything up and goes back into the house. Now, while we're in his bedroom, uh, there is one weird thing next to his bed, and it happens to be the ashtray from the very first film. See, there, there's a couple of things. Either they're just reusing set items and whatever it is, or they're trying to keep some type of continuity between the stories. Now, this is the only thing that I really noticed, and it does show up in the next one and in the last one. I think it actually shows up in either the epilogue or the prologue as well. Now, other things from other parts of the sets, I couldn't, you know, I necessarily didn't look out for. This is the only thing that constantly caught my eye. I'm pretty sure if that I went back through the rest of the film, that I could find other things that you could notice uh, between each of the different stories. So he basically decides, okay, it's time to go get dressed, but he gets a little bit of paranoia because one of the video monitors does go out when he, one of the ones that was, you know, checking on the two uh, to make sure that they were dead. Of course, he just assumes that, hey, they just got wiped out into the sea and there's nothing else that we can even worry about. They're dead, no worry. And uh, he goes and takes a shower. So we get a little bit of a Leslie Nielsen bod, if you know what I'm saying, fellas. I mean, ladies. Uh, I mean, uh... oh, so uh, he, he hears noises and he jumps out of the shower. And uh, when he goes to open the door from his bedroom, of course, uh, with his gun in tow, he runs into the bloated corpses of Harry and Rebecca. And I have to say, the makeup is pretty sweet. And you're going to hear a couple things, a little bit of a longer scene. And one of the things that he does do is try to shoot both of these guys. uh, And he shoots both of them in the head. When he shoots them in the head... They just keep coming and the blood just kind of spills out of the head. Though there is one scene where he shoots uh, Harry in the side and that kind of like delays him, which is weird. But we basically have these two corpses and they're coming after Richard for revenge. Of course, when he runs out of bullets, he decides that he's going to throw the gun at them. I mean, come on. When has that ever worked? Is that really the way that you want to go down? 
instead of just running away, dropping the gun, you obviously have shot one of them in the head. You're going to keep fucking trying. Just fucking run away. I, I never understand why people do that in horror films at all. And especially when you run out of bullets, you throw away the gun. It's really kind of silly. But I guess that's kind of the dark humor that kind of goes along with this film in general. So he runs back into his bedroom, he closes the door, and what do we see but somehow Harry and Rebecca have popped in behind him and they capture him. Now we get one of my favorite endings to any of the the stories that are within this film. And we now see Richard, he's on the beach, he's buried up to his neck, his sanity is obviously gone... And he's yelling at them, telling them, hey, I can hold my breath. <laughs> I can hold my breath for a long time. <laughs> now, the next story in our anthology here, and we're down to the last two, uh, happens to be the one which is kind of the most generic but it's got some good scenes in it it's probably uh out of the stories uh it's probably my second favorite out of everything that's here and i'll go through and i'll rank the rest of them at the end of the podcast but uh it's definitely got the most generic title which is the crate and it's based upon the short story the crate i (sighs) It's weird. Uh, it starts off with a janitor and he drops a quarter and he says something after he drops it that is very, very familiar. Hey, look at that. Ah, fuck a diddle. Did you get that? Fuck a dill? Wasn't that in fucking Dreamcatcher? So you're telling me that Stephen King has been creating these types of weird catchphrases like that since at least 1982? Wow, that just kind of blew my mind. Like, I thought that maybe those lines were just used for freaking Dreamcatcher. But now, as we see here, Stephen King's been using fuck-a-dill for quite some time. So he drops a quarter, and he sees that there's a random crate down there. And from him looking at it, we cut over to basically like a garden party. And that's where we get to meet kind of our main characters of this story. In Dexter... And Henry, wait a second. We've had three different versions of fucking Henry, haven't we? Harry, Hank, Henry. Don't they all, like, connect to each other in some way, shape, or... Fucking lazy fucking character writing, I swear to God. Okay, we'll just move on. So, you see they're at this garden party, and I guess it's something to do with the university that they work at. It looks like it's more of like a meet and greet between different parties. And we notice that uh, Henry here has a wife that's a complete and utter drunk embarrassment. And if Dex Stanley hadn't had his teeth capped, he'd have been out on his ass years ago. Uh, really well, my So son. when Parker Harry, told wait. me that I was out of line, I told him he ought to get laid. <laughs> I mean, Parker, I said, if you just have your ashes hauled, you wouldn't have to spend all this time playing Emily Vanderbilt. Or Emily Van Buren. Or whoever that etiquette crotch is. Excuse me? See, she's just a loud and obnoxious drunk, and she is kind of, not necessarily rumored, it's, like, implied that she's kind of abusive to poor old Henry. Everybody there basically kind of just talks shit about her behind her back, and she always mentions, and it's a constant thing, about how Henry, he wouldn't be able to do anything without me, 
like it's said so many fucking times that it really does get truly annoying. Well, Dexter here, he gets a call from uh, somebody at the university, and basically they tell him that, hey, we found this old crate. So I thought I ought to call you anyway. Uh, see what you thought, Professor Stanley. Uh, who told you I was here? Charlie Garrison. Yeah, I sent him out for a hamburger. Just about twisted his arm. That kid don't know if it's night or day when he gets going. Yeah, he's very dedicated. Look, uh, I'd be almost willing to bet that crate's full of National Geographic uh, back issues of the Reader's Digest. Well, uh, the date on it said... 1834? Did they uh, publish the Reader's Digest way back then, Professor Stanley? 1834? Really? Yeah. It was stenciled right on the side. June 19, 1834. And then something about uh, an Arctic expedition. Oh, man, there's something more interesting in your crate than National Geographic's after all, Mike. So this causes Dexter to just fucking bolt the party and go on. And we get what... (laughs) See, Henry is so beat up by his wife, Wilma, that he begins to have these really interesting dreams uh, about what he really wants to do to her. looking to put the knife in. I mean, some of these so-called academics make the shark in Jaws look like fucking flipper. Wilma! Husband's calling you, Billy. Oh, God, Henry, what's wrong now? Not a thing, Wilma. Everything's just fine. Hell of a shot. Why is it when anybody has something that is completely fake in a dream, everybody fucking claps at the end of it? They all stand around and, hey, cheer, yay, you did the right thing, woo! Like, it makes no sense. Why? They're all happy that she's dead. They're just like, oh, he killed her. She's such a bitch that, hey, I have no problem that <laughs> that you shot her in the fucking head and her brain spilled all out on the floor, splattered on my coats, and do whatever. And of course, it's just a dream. She's still yelling at him, and he's got to go on living this pitiful life that he has. We cut back over, and we see that Dexter is there with Mike, and he wonders uh, to Mike directly, what exactly made you want to go into this area where the crate is? Why you look under here anyway? Oh, I flipped a quarter trying to decide if I should buff the second floor hallway first or wash the lab windows. Only when it came down, I missed it. <laughs> and it rolled under here. Oh, and he also needed to get that quarter because that was the last one he had to make sure that he got a Coke. I guess product placement? I mean, before you get killed by some random monster in a crate, make sure you drink a fucking Coke. Don't drink that Pepsi shit. Make sure it's a fucking Coke. So, they decide to take the the big giant crate well it's not really that giant but it's big enough and take it into the lab where they begin to open it up uh as they're lifting it up it's as heavy as a motherfucker and they realize that maybe there's actually something in there that's one felt like something shifted in there did you feel it when we lifted it on the table i did feel something there under the stairs it felt pretty heavy yeah but it seemed like something moved on its own if there ever really were any living specimens there, I doubt if they're feeling very lively after, what, 147 years. Oh, oh yeah. 
So from here, we cut quickly back over to Henry's house where Henry has another dream of killing his wife before she tells him, well, I'm leaving. I'm going to be back later tonight. Probably because, you know, she's going to go meet her, like, you know, boyfriend somewhere. And they're going to fuck around because Henry's not going to do a thing because he's too much of a pussy to let her go or fucking kill her like he keeps dreaming about. And instead, she just goes on her merry way and we go back over to Mike and Dexter and they're taking out the last of the nails from the uh, outside of this crate. Before the last nail is completely removed, Dexter says, you know what, Mike, you're the one that found this crate and I want you to be the one to open it up. And he's all excited to do it. They get ready. Then all of a sudden, what happens? The monster shows up. And he's kind of like, I guess if you best describe him, be like a Yeti, uh, where he's white fur, big long teeth. He came from the Arctic. Uh, and, well, he starts fucking eating Mike. Uh, and that causes, you know, poor Dexter here to go into a panic and run out of the fucking room. I thought there was going to be something kind of neat like, because uh, his arm was the first thing that was held inside of the crate, and I really thought that he was going to be maybe slowly pulled inside of the crate, uh, and then as Dexter was trying to pull Mike back, like his arm would rip and then blood would splatter, but no, he just kind of lets go and then he gets pulled inside the crate where I guess he's completely devoured by the creature. This also, like I said, causes Mike to run out of the room. And again, I don't know why this keeps popping up, but there's always these Homer Simpson and a Moo type of scenes where they're speaking so goddamn fast you can't understand what it is, but you know that the end of the world is probably going to happen. Who, son? Son? Why? The janitor. The place. It was... It was... It was... It was... Slow down, Professor Stanley. Slow down. I don't know what you're talking about. You know, the janitor. You know, Mike, the janitor. Yes, of course I do. Well, he's fucking dead downstairs. That's what the fuck is going on. So he goes and takes Charlie with him downstairs, and Charlie looks in the corner because the crate has moved from the top of the table into the corner. And that, of course, causes Charlie to be a little apprehensive of what's going on the situation and whether or not Dexter actually is telling the truth until he sees the shoe of Mike over in the corner with a bunch of bike marks on it. Uh, he grabs himself a weapon, one to get the flashlight to make sure that Dexter can put it on there. But as he says, he just really wants the shoe. Believe me. Charlie, don't go near it. I want to measure the bite marks. Maybe we can figure out what we're dealing with here. And then we have the Yeti pop out of everything after the shoe is knocked back over to Mike. And there's some pretty good effects here. Now, the creature makeup is kind of okay. I mean, it looks more like a gorilla than anything else. But the whole thing when they do the close-up with the mouth, it's not terrible. But how charlie gets mutilated is actually kind of cool and it kind of looks like that old school tom savini uh makeup that you're you know he's really known for though it's obvious that he's on a tighter budget than he should be for this type of film uh this causes dexter to go absolutely batshit and run the fuck away and he ends up back at henry's house where he begins to tell uh, henry what exactly happened 
We, we gotta stop. We gotta stop. Stop what? people with the devil. I mean, we gotta do Christ. They die. Hey, Dex. Dex. Hold it. <laughs> what happened? People are dead already. And oh, who's dead? Where's Wilma? She's gone. Dex, what the, what the hell happened? So, of course, he's worried that Wilma is going to be there and that she's going to either, one, uh, get the police called on him or, two, interfere with whatever the fuck is going on. At this point, I kind of was like, I wonder what would actually have happened if she would have been there. Like, would she have yelled at poor Henry, saying, you need to get this crazy man out of my house? Or would she have just gone all like fucking Arnold Schwarzenegger and decided, I'm going to go back, I'm going to see what's so bad about this monster going on. Or maybe I guess this is more like Big Mama than Arnold Schwarzenegger. Go back to the university and then, mm-hmm, I'm going to take care of him. You don't know what's going on. That monster is going to get it. Or would it be just like, hmm, your friend's fucking crazy. You better call the fucking cops and get them the fuck out of here. Probably would have been interesting. But how we resolve the whole Wilma thing is very entertaining in this uh, little story. So he takes him upstairs. Henry takes Dexter upstairs, gives him some alcohol, and really wants him to, you know, explain exactly what he saw. Last time I saw someone do that was in the movies. It could be my ass. It really wasn't me. It was that thing in the in the crate. <laughs> I don't even know where it was. What two people? Who is dead? Mike, the janitor, and Emerson Hall. Charlie Garris. He wanted to measure the bite marks, Henry. <laughs> I guess he got his chance. I totally guess he yeah. did. I, I can't do anything for you unless you stop being so goddamn elliptical. Now, just slow down. Tell me the whole story from the beginning. Can you do that? Oh, all right. I think I can do that now. Oh, thank God for you. So, one, I want to talk about that laugh. That laugh is really weird and kind of ridiculous. How he could go from the point of being... Like, so goddamn scared and everything to the point that actually making a very funny statement, I guess he's going to be able to tell <laughs> what the bite marks now because he's been so close with the personal uh, space of that monster. So, it's it's weird that it's kind of played out this way. Uh, it's not the the best thing for, I think, this type of scene. I get it. He's kind of a hysterical and stuff like that, but that laugh is just so out of place. I'd rather have more of like the panicking version of Dexter. So Henry listens to him a little more and then he goes and says, I'll be right back and goes to the cabinet and gets some pills. And now he takes the pills and he puts them in a glass and mixes them with some more brandy, I'm assuming that it is. Because, of course, if you're going to be highbrow about everything, you're not going to do some type of, like, whiskey bullshit. You're going to do brandy that's inside one of those, you know, nice glass bottles that you keep on your shelf. Because, man, you are fucking classy, and you don't need to have any of that fucking Jack Daniels around you wherever you want to have something to drink. That, or you're just putting the Jack Daniels in the glass bottle and you're saying, hey, I'm classy, uh, even though this whiskey is pretty much shit. Uh, So, he 
convinces Dex that, hey, you got to take one more drink because I'm going to help you out here because we're friends. So don't worry about it. Just have this, and then we'll go take care of whatever is going on. What it really means is I'm going to knock your ass fucking out, and I thought he was going to call the cops, but it turns out that, no, he writes a note to his wife and goes to the university to clean it up. When Wilma comes home, uh, she reads the note. Wilma, I've had to leave in a hurry because of a call from Dexter Stanley. He seems to have gotten himself in a great deal of trouble. I'm ashamed to tell you of this, but ever since Dexter's wife died, he's had problems coping with certain young female grad students. He's been able to cover up several incidents, but this one looks very serious. It seems he got a young woman to accompany him to Amberson Hall under false pretenses and then attacked her. When Dex called me, he was barely coherent. He was gibbering with fear and crying, I think. Oh, poor Dex. I tried to get him to tell me what had happened to the girl, but for the most part, he only kept repeating, it's awful, Henry, it's awful. Wilma. Could you come out here? I know it's asking a lot, but you're always so clear-headed about these things. And you know how to be firm. I think Dex could use a firmer hand than mine right now. Not to mention the girl herself. He said that she had curled up in a dark place and won't come out. I'm sorry to have to ask you to come over to Amberson Hall and help me out. But as you so often say, what would I do without you? What indeed, Henry? What indeed? <laughs> so, you may have noticed that there was the sound of liquid being poured and liquid being poured. Now, she made herself a cocktail. I don't know how to really think about this or how I feel. Maybe that's the better way to think about it. She took milk. Okay, fine. I'm okay with milk. Poured it into a nice tall glass. Uh, had it there. You know, nice and frothy. Maybe it's whole milk. Mm, that's going to be so goddamn delicious. And it maybe, you know, milk at night has helps some people sleep. I know it's more warm milk than cold milk. But still, I would be okay with that. Then, you see in the kitchen, they also have those bottles of brandy. Or whiskey. Or scotch. Or... Whatever it might be. But uh, she takes that bottle, opens it, and pours it in the fucking milk. Who the fuck mixes brandy or scotch or whiskey with, like, whole milk? Or even non-feminine. Any type of milk. Why would you mix dairy with alcohol? Okay, I can get it. Okay, Irish car bomb. Alright, that's kind of a dairy type of thing. Or even uh, a freaking Irish coffee, right? coffee it's a cream i get it maybe she that's just the way maybe that's irish whiskey and she's irishing up her milk but it just sounds so goddamn disgusting like put something else in there maybe go and get that you know hershey's quick and mix some fucking chocolate in there so at least maybe be closer to like a bailey's or something like that but just fucking plain old milk and fucking brandy oh that's just it makes my head hurt so much that it sounds so disgusting. And it really, really is upsetting my stomach right now. 
But of course, I digress. So she takes her milk with her, by the way, and drives to the university. And when she pops up, you can see that she's holding her road... Well, I would call it a road soda if it was a beer. So it's like a road shake? Because it's milk? I, I don't know. Uh, and she decides to go downstairs where Henry is. Henry, in the meanwhile, the entire time they were going through this and that uh, letter that he wrote to his wife, is cleaning the area downstairs so she can't see the blood. Now, if you know where this is going, uh, please don't ruin it for yourself, because I will ruin it for you shortly. Um, she goes down there, she sees Henry, and they begin to talking about the story of Dexter and whomever this mystery girl is. Well, how bad is she? Is she conscious? It's easier if you just see for yourself, Wilma. What are you laughing about? Your best friend gets in a scrape with a girl and you're laughing? Well, there's a funny side to it, Wilma. Wait till you see. You'll think so yourself. You're hysterical, Henry. It's just what I would have expected. No, I don't think you'll expect this, Wilma. No, this is going to be an entirely new experience. So, if you haven't figured it out yet, he's going to use the monster to get rid of his wife, Wilma. Huh, that gives me an idea. I wonder if I could have a monster get rid of my enemies. Uh, that might take a lot more coercing than I want to do at this point. Because... He does try to get the monster over there. Like, he totally does a 180 in terms of how he reacts to his wife because he's finally living out his fantasy. He's been wanting to kill her all this time, and now he's got a way to do it. And not only a way to do it uh, that he doesn't have to get his hands dirty, but a way to do it to where he can get away with it. Now, I was going to cut this next clip into two separate clips, but I think it's kind of important and kind of neat to see how it plays out, uh, especially because you have the beginning when he's trying to wake up the monster into coming and getting Wilma and ultimately failing for the moment until it actually happens. So this is going to be a little bit of a longer clip, but I think that it works perfectly just as one clip rather than two. So without further ado, Henry... Take it away. What are you doing, Henry? What are you doing? What I should have done a long time ago. Get in there, Wilma. Just tell it to call your Billy, you bitch. Stop it. Stop it, Henry. I'll scream. I'll scream all you want. I'll help you. Wake up. Wake up. Whatever you are. Wake up. Wake up. Dinner time. Poison me. Wake up. Wake up. Henry. That was just great. You think this is a Friday night fight? Huh? Is that what you think? You want to see some real punching? Same old Henry. Afraid of your own shadow. 
You know what, Henry? You're a regular barnyard exhibit. Sheep's eyes, chicken guts, piggy friends, and shit for brains. No good at departmental politics. No good at making money. No good at making an impression on anybody. And no good at all in bed. When was the last time you got it up, Henry? Huh? When was the last time you were a man in our bed? Now get out of my way, Henry, or I swear to God you'll be wearing your balls for earrings. And I swear to God, if you ever touch... Got her! <laughs> Basically, El Bisto jumps out of the crate and then starts eating the crap out of her. And let me say this, too. Why is it when, you know, a woman, you know, doesn't agree with what a man's doing when he's trying to fucking use a monster to kill her? I mean, that's just like every normal relationship, right? Uh, and he doesn't succeed right away that she decides to attack his manhood... Like, that's just the easy way to go. Hey, you can't get your monster to kill me. Guess what? You got a small dick, motherfucker. It's just the way these things work. And of course, it ends up backfiring on her as well, because El Monstero here, he decides that he's going to start eating the shit out of her. So, Henry, he watches everything happen, then he slowly starts to, uh, well, he waits for a little bit. I shouldn't say slowly starts to do anything. But what he really does is he waits for the monster to go back and he starts locking it up. And uh, this is where we get kind of a weird thing where we get to hear what Henry is saying that he did uh, while he's telling Dexter exactly what he has done. I didn't see anyone. Not a soul. At this time of the year and no other, the campus is almost totally deserted. The summer session is over and the fall semester doesn't start for two more weeks. It was almost hellishly perfect. I never saw so much as a pair of headlights. Henry, what, what, what did you do with the crate? The crate? That's the beauty of it. You provided the final piece in the jigsaw puzzle yourself. The crate is at the bottom of Ryder's quarry. I drove out there with the remains of three human beings. Well, two human beings and Wilma. I began to wonder... Where did they go? I mean, how much could it eat? I think maybe at the very end, it began to suspect what was happening. See, now this is rude by Henry. He got rid of a problem that he's been having for quite a long time, for as long as those two have been married. And of course, he's just going to dump poor monster off into the fucking lake and drown him. Kind of sucks. Well, he doesn't know if that's necessarily going to drown him. Maybe the thing could survive in water. Who knows? But he said he chained it up pretty well. Uh, and he decides, what are they going to do about everything? Well, you know, they're not going to really say anything. So, the question is, what happens now? There's no evidence of foul play I've seen to that. And there are no bodies. No. So what about you, Dexter? What are you going to say? Nothing. Thanks. So, like they've said throughout this whole story, that friends just do what they do. They just help each other. So if you've used a random monster to kill your horribly abusive wife, uh, it's your friend's job to basically say nothing about it and let you get away with whatever you've done. Uh, then they sit down, they figure out every two weeks they're going to be playing chess with each other. And 
it's weird. At the end of this, uh, I want to hear it if you hear it. Uh, does Henry say prelax at the end of this instead of relax? Because they're sitting down to a nice game of chess. Uh, and of course, uh, this leads to the end of the story. What if it gets out, Henry? What if it gets out of that crate? Oh, for God's If you saw the way I chained it up, you wouldn't worry. That thing is drowned in its box 70 feet down. <laughs> Relax. I'm pretty sure I just heard him say, Prelax. He says, Relax, and then he says, Prelax. So, of course, they cut to the last shot of the whole story is the monster breaking out of the cage, and he's going to go wreak havoc upon society. And it could be something like the second one where this is going to ruin the whole world, or it's just some type of Yeti, and it's going to be a new environment, and eventually it's going to be shot and killed. Who knows? But that's the way this story ends. And we go to our last story, which is the second shortest out of all the stories. Now, with this one, uh, the clips tend, again, tend to be a little longer, just because I like some of the things that they said. And this is my second favorite performance in this film who is portrayed by E.G. Marshall, and that's Mr. Pratt. And this story is very, very weird and kind of awkward at the same time. And it's called They're Creeping Up on You. Now, this is one of those, like, Howard Hughes type of characters that you've got. And he's really, really eccentric, and he's also a very big germaphobe. Hello, that you, White? No, sir, Mr. Pratt, but this is George Gendron here. I just got off the plane from Seattle. I have my report ready for typing, and the I want... The building to... superintendent is on vacation, George. Sir? You believe that? Vacation. Uh, well, I... I... told them I wanted to hear from him within the hour. Within the hour. And he now has... It's 9.34 p.m. Exactly 26 minutes to go, or he can stay on vacation permanently. Bastard. You see, he lives in an all-white, like, uh condo apartment in new york city and of course we get to see him right before he takes that call and he kills one cockroach and he's very very afraid of bugs for some reason and that's that howard hughes type of uh character that he really is as you see that as he continues to talking to this person on the phone where he continues to complain about bugs and how if his apartment is germ proof why can't it also be bug proof Mr. Pratt. Air pollution counts up to almost seven, George. Oh? Well, I... People are out there on the streets dying of carbon monoxide poisoning, and they don't even know it. Uh, yes, sir. But, but, oh, Mr. I found another cockroach this evening, George. Oh, no. One of those big ones. Right here in my $3,200 a month penthouse apartment. My supposedly germ-proof apartment. Now, would you like to tell me, George, how an apartment can be germ-proof when it's not even bug-proof? So he kills the bug that he was staring at at that moment, and he continues to talk to the guy on the phone. Uh, the guy keeps trying to tell him that something's happened with one of the takeovers that he's recently done, but he doesn't really listen to him. See, he's still going around the apartment, and he's just really focused on getting rid of the bugs. I loathe bugs. Uh, yes, sir, but, but Mr. Loathe them! I realize that, but, but there's something you should know. I've got to let you go, I, I... George. You did well. Go out and fuck somebody. But we're a damn rubber. Everybody's got the damn herpes these days. Sir, Norman Gaston Myers shot himself an hour ago. What? He, he, he did it when 
Well, when it became clear, there was no uh, no way to stop the takeover. At least that's what his uh, wife thinks. Wonderful. As you see, Mr. Pratt, he's really, really excited the fact that the guy, the company that he took over, the owner of that company killed himself because he couldn't deal with the fact that it was a hostile takeover. The way that Mr. Pratt is played is absolutely fantastic. Like I said, this is the second favorite performance in this entire film. He's really like... The, the facial expressions that he uses, the way that his hair is set up, he looks really insane, but at the same time, he knows exactly what he's doing. He's just more of a germaphobe than anything else. He's a very cruel businessman, but at the same time, he's fucking insane with how cleanly everything has to be. So he hangs up with him and expecting that the uh, the building superintendent is going to be calling him, which eventually does, and he actually is out uh, taking his family to Disneyland, uh, where the guy basically says, well, you need to figure out all this stuff because I don't like the guy that's basically taken over for you, and if you don't figure it out now, you're not going to have a job, and you're going to have to take your kids to Disney, or Disney World, I should say, uh, with your welfare check, which, again, speaks to Mr. Pratt's character. Uh, We then see him get another phone call, and this time, it's the wife of the man that was killed. Reynolds, wife? Talk to me. I just called to tell you what a monster you are, Mr. Pratt. And how I will rejoice when you're finally dead. Lots of people are going to rejoice when I'm dead. Who are you? Lenore Kassenmeyer. I'm the wife of the man you... You murdered this afternoon. Mrs. Katzenmeyer, how are you? I hope they keep hell hot for you. You son of a bitch. I hope they do. It wasn't enough for you to drive him to his knees, was it? No, you had to kill him as well. He came home. And and his eyes, his eyes were so dead. I asked him what was wrong. What could be so bad to make his eyes look that way? And the only word he could say was your name. Ten minutes later, I heard the shot. Yes. George Genron told me old Norman went out with a bang. How many men have you destroyed? How many men have you killed, you monster? Only the stupid ones. Only the ones who handed me a knife and then stretched out their throats. Only the ones who, if you'll pardon the expression, fucked up. He plays that character so well. What you don't get within that scene is a uh, shot of him as she's starting to cry over the phone playing a violin, (laughs) like the world smiles violin because she's crying the fact that her husband killed himself because he took over his business. Because he is all business. And you see, just with that, he even starts playing happy music while she's still crying and talking to him. It's a character that's so bad that it's fantastic. And just with the facial expressions and the way that everything about this character is portrayed, it's awesome. I absolutely love the way that he does it. It's just a fantastic character and it's a fantastic performance for the rest of the film. From here, we see that he gets a knock on his door and it's the current building superintendent, the one that's taking over for the other guy, trying to get in touch with him to help him get rid of his bug problem. Talk to me. Who's there? Good evening there, Mr. Pratt. 
Got bugs again, huh, Mr. Pratt? Don't you talk to me like that, you hear? What way, Mr. Pratt? Like I was crazy. Oh, no, sir, Mr. Pratt, sir. I don't think you was crazy, not at all. I was just trying to run down in my mind who might have a 24-hour fumigating service. I might be able to get Pirelli Brothers out here by, shall we say, 11.30? You might go far, White. I've noticed that in service jobs, people like yourself often do. People of color. Yes, 11.30 would be fine. Thanks, Mr. Pratt, sir. I'll call them just as soon as I finish with that shower on 23. Now, you see, what's weird about this scene is the fact that they're talking to each other through like a speaker system with a door, and you really only see their mouth and their teeth. And every, every, once in a while, you see an eye, and it's usually Mr. Pratt's eye, not necessarily uh, Mr. White's eye. And Mr. White, he's on the outside, and you do get a full shot of him from like the side at one little scene. And it's a weird kind of back and forth between the two of them, especially the way that Mr. White is playing it, because he's kind of almost playing it in that old type of, uh, you know, uh, stereotypical like master type of relationship. Uh, in the way that he's talking with the guy. And you also find out that, hey, Mr. Pratt is pretty fucking racist at the same time. Because, you know, you colored folk, you do very well. Like, he gets in, he doesn't have a southern type of draw or anything at any point until he starts talking to Mr. White. And it's a very weird type of take on the situation and how that borders them and actually... Mr. White seems a lot more free on the outside and a lot more comfortable than Mr. Pratt does on the inside, locked in his germ-free, perfect world, making all of the money in the world. So he's looking outside, uh, he goes to the window, and he starts talking about how he was in Hell's Kitchen, that's where he grew up, and he knew how to get rid of bugs, when all of a sudden, there is a giant power outage. And he happens to have an emergency phone line that is going to go to the police, because... All of a sudden, there are tons of cockroaches that start filling his apartment because the power has gone out. Police emergency. It's about time. What are you people doing down hey, there? We've got problems tonight, fella. Listen, or listen, listen. Look this is up some crap. The up some crap. I've got bugs. Everybody's got bugs tonight, and I don't have time for bullshit. Oh, no, you don't understand. These are cockroaches. The biggest bugs I've ever seen. Do you know who I am? Do you know who the fuck I am? No, we really don't give a shit because we got this power outage and it doesn't matter. You're up in a fucking high rise and you're just dealing with fucking cockroaches. Anybody else could deal with it. But of course, he's really fucking freaking out. And he has actually like a panic room that he decides to get in. And even without power, mind you, he's able to figure out what the code is, which unlocks the panic room. So I guess that thing is either on a separate circuit or whatever the hell. It's a fucking movie. So he goes inside of the panic room and he believes that he's beaten the roaches at their end game. You'll never get in here. Never. And when this blackout is over, people are going to pay. Oh, yes. You pay too. Every one of you. Every damn one of you. I've been beating bugs all my life. I'll beat you too. Bastards. Bah. 
And he turns around and he looks at the bed. He takes the sheets off the bed. And the bed is covered, literally covered with cockroaches. Which ultimately have him, like, I guess he has like a heart attack from the shock of seeing all the bugs in his bed. Hell, it's kind of like that Pearl Jam song, you know, Bugs. He's got bugs in my room. You know, feet off the door, where he's basically talking about kind of a lapse, and I think it's more of like a heroin type of overdose or something like that, where he starts seeing all the bugs, and they're coming through the walls, and they're coming, and then he's going to join them. Uh, it's not quite that type of ending, but he definitely does pass away, and the lights finally come on after the whole bug infestation thing in the panic room, and we see Mr. White calling out to Mr. Pratt. Mr. Pratt? You there, Mr. Pratt? Mr. Pratt? Talk to me! <laughs> talk to me! Talk to me! Bastard. What's the matter, Mr. Pratt? Bugs got your tongue? And now we get one of the most awesome and most disgusting scenes in the movie, and Tom Savini does an amazing fucking job with this scene because I was completely grossed out at the same time. I thought it was one of the coolest things that I think I've seen in a while. And this is from a film from 1982, mind you. You see, as he's saying, what's the matter? Bug got your tongue. And then it's panning in on Mr. Pratt and he's passed out on the bed. And then it kind of goes on this weird like top view of him. And we slowly start to see the cockroaches come out of his mouth. And then it doesn't just come out of his mouth. They start burrowing through like the top of his chest by his neck. And then all of a sudden they're just coming out of every single like pore that this guy has on his body. And after we see a ton of cockroaches leaving him, it fades to black and we go back to the epilogue. Well, the prologue setting into the epilogue of the film. And that's where we see some garbage man. It's the next morning. And some garbage man they're picking up the the products uh, or the trash i should say not necessarily the products but they run across the magazine and of course they wonder what exactly it is comic book what it's a comic book what it's a comic book book. my kids love these things i love them too hey look look you can send away for all this stuff here look x-ray glasses Uh, they don't work they make your eyes black you look in it it's a gag you know Look, an authentic voodoo doll. Somebody already sent for it. Yeah, we can't get that. Why can't they get that, you ask? Well, we go from them over to the house. And okay, and I gotta say, these guys are the worst garbage men since Charlie Sheen and Emilio Estevez and Men at Work. I mean, honestly, these guys just throwing things everywhere. They just fucking throw the lid off to the side. If you remember back in the day when we used to have those metal garbage cans, you know, when they weren't provided for you by the city or the state or wherever the fuck you live, uh, but you actually had the big giant metal garbage cans, this is what these guys had. And they're just throwing everything willy-nilly and throwing it all over the fucking place. And they, I'm surprised that they managed to actually find the comic book without just fucking, you know, throwing it in there and being done with it. So after they've done their horrible job and they talk about the ads that are inside there and notice that the voodoo doll is gone, we go back into the house. Now, we're going to play pretty much the the ending scene with along to the credits. So enjoy the end of Creepshow. Where's Billy? He'll be down in a minute. I know he's up. Billy! 
Stan, are you all right? I didn't get much sleep last night. Storm? Oh, it's this goddamn stiff neck. I can barely move my head. You must have strained it. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. Ah. Well, you poor old bear. You want me to get some Bengay? No. No. Ah. Oh. Ah, oh, teach you to throw away my comic box. Oh. 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 Ready for another shot, Dad? And that was Creepshow. That's the way it ends. And, uh, you know, we know that the Billy, Stephen King's son, uh, is teaching his father a lesson by stabbing him in the neck with the pins on the voodoo doll. Which is weird because when we went to one of the scenes earlier when they're doing the, like, ads, uh, and we see the voodoo doll at one point, but we don't get to see whether or not the coupon's been taken out. And it'd be kind of cool if they had made that type of continuity uh, in seeing that the coupon was missing from the animated sequences, that we could have had a little bit of foreshadowing of where it was and what was going on. But other than that, it's, you know, it's a decent way to end the film. I mean, we don't really need the bookends, to be honest with you, uh, other than to give it a Tales from the Crypt type of feel. But it's still, you know, it's still well done, and it's a decent uh, ending and beginning to this film to put all the stories together. The animated sequences, when they go through the comic books, and even with the animated guy, whoever this creeper guy is, uh, are excellent. It kind of is a little bit of rotoscope, it feels like at least. Uh, and I really like the way that things get framed by comic book panels and different comic things that would normally be used with inside of a comic book. It looks really great. In terms of the stories that are available in this anthology, my favorite really is something to tide you over. And then if I have to rank the rest of them in terms of the film, uh, I would say The Crate is probably my number two. Then it's followed by uh, the last one, uh, They're Creeping Up on You. I almost would have made that my second favorite, but because the story is kind of short and there's nothing really that happens other than guys afraid of bugs and afraid of germs bugs get them bugs kill them uh there's nothing much that i really have to that story so that's why it goes number three but really the acting in that is top notch and it's a wonderful character that's really truly horrible uh then i would go with the very first one father's day and the last one would be stephen king's story uh the lonesome death of Jordy verrill just because, like the last one in this film, there's not a whole lot of story other than seeing that he's going to die. I mean, it's kind of already there in the title, and it's not really acted well. I understand this is Stephen King's really only first foray into a full-fledged character, and not just being a cameo with inside the film, which I think he suits better for than doing this, because he really looks horrible the way that he does his like facial expressions and his the way he tries to portray being a slack-jawed yokel it just doesn't quite work for me so overall with the film uh i give the gore a four out of five and it's really for the couple of the pieces the birthday cake 
the way that the bugs did it in that last scene, uh, and then the way that you saw them get the undead water people get shot in the head within uh, the third story. And for 1982, I think it's pretty well done. It's not so much... I wish there would have been more with the creature that was in the crate, and we got uh, a little more maybe limbs being torn off or whatever it was, uh, and maybe really letting Tom Savini really fly with the coolness factor, because you know he can do it, and maybe with the budget he had for this one, this is what he was able to do in certain instances and places. Fun factor, this is a 5 out of 5. Even if you don't like some of the other things that are in it uh, and some of the stories, the the acting is pretty well done. The stories themselves, they're not terrible. Uh, honestly, his best work is something to tide you over. I just really like that story, the ideas behind it, the way that it's acted, even from people not named Leslie Nielsen within that story. Uh, it's fantastic, and it's so much fun to watch. And even with as shitty as the last story is, because it's pretty basic, right? Uh, the character is so good and so well done and so well written that I really enjoyed it. And I, after even putting everything together, it doesn't. Everything's paced well. The only one that feels a little long is the crate, and that's where I kind of teeter between two and three. But because the story and the comeuppance of Wilma, that's why that gets the second spot in um, my ranking of the stories in this anthology. Um, Crap Factor, it's a 2 out of 5. There are some pretty crappy things, but overall, it's relatively good. And you could definitely stomach it. It's the reason why this is a cult classic uh, and why it's so good, to be honest with you. I remember this being really shitty, and I think I was just mainly thinking about the Stephen King segment, because this is one of those movies that would always pop up on TNT, right? Uh, you get Monster Vision, and boom, this would always be one of those. Or, you know, it's going to be Heavy Metal, or Akira, or whatever, it's a Godzilla movie that you were going to watch. Uh, or eventually, you know, when they get to the Nightmare on Elm Street and the uh, Friday the 13th films. But this was one of those ones that would always pop up and my family was, you know, ones to be like, okay, this isn't that bad. And it really comes down to a lot of it, honestly, comes, like I said before, with the language. And that's one of the weird things that have gone with this film um, is in general, the language isn't that terrible. Uh, especially if you're somebody that's, you know, was a young mind like myself, I could sit down, I could watch this. You know, there's a couple of craps, a couple of friggins, whatever, a couple of fucks here and there. But honestly, there's a couple of ADR things where I honestly thought that uh, she says something. I think she's going to say, see you next Tuesday, but she says crotch instead. But when you listen to the crotch, it sounds really ADR. And that's Wilma in the crate segment. And I played the crypt, uh, clip too, not the crypt. Uh <laughs> And uh, you guys can go back and listen to it. Uh, I'm sorry I didn't talk about it right when it happened, but I kind of want to save this for the end. Because it happens a lot throughout this, where some of the stories, it really feels like they said certain things, but then it got replaced with something else. And even in the beginning, where he's saying shit, and then he says friggin', it's really weird to have that kind of, uh, you know, back and forth uh, with, okay, filthy language is okay here, but I'm not going to say fuck. I, I don't know what else uh, or how else really to explain it because uh, my mind is turning to mush doing so much Stephen King films. Um, so many Stephen King films, if I'm going to be grammatically correct. Uh, 
So, overall, I give this film four out of five head cakes. Uh, I think everybody should see it at least once. If you've never seen Creepshow before, please go and watch it. If you just want to pick and choose uh, something to tide you over in the crate will be fine, as well as the last one uh, where they're creeping up on you. Uh, those three, you could watch those and be fine. You could skip Father's Day. You could skip... I don't necessarily recommend skipping the lonely, lonely death of Jordy Verrill uh, just because you have to see Stephen King act in that part. And you might as well just watch the whole fucking film, okay? It's cool to see Ed Harris in such a young role. It's cool to see Ted Danson in such a role. And it's fucking awesome to see Leslie Nielsen in a non-comedic, straight fucking role. And he is, again, I cannot praise him enough in this film. He is goddamn fantastic. So, to end Stephen King month, we are going with what some would consider to be the mother of all Stephen King films. Why, do you ask? Well, I'm going to let Stephen King tell you himself. Hi. My name is Stephen King. I've written several motion pictures, but I want to tell you about a movie called Maximum Overdrive, which is the first one I've directed. Wow. What in the dickens is going on around here? A lot of people have directed Stephen King novels and stories. And I finally decided if you want something done right, you ought to do it yourself. And who was driving it? I don't know. It was my first picture as a director, and you know something? I sort of enjoyed it. What is going on? I don't know! I just wanted someone to do Stephen King right. You want a war? You got one. I just want to get the hell out of here. So come and spend some time with me and my friends at the Dixie Boy. Spend some time in the dark. Please don't let me in the dark. I'm gonna scare the hell out of you. And that's a promise. You're gonna get us in an awful lot of trouble, man. We already in trouble. Maximum terror. Jesus coming and he is. Maximum king. Maybe tomorrow will be our world again. Dino De Laurentiis presents Stephen King's Maximum Overdrive. That's right. Even though that music there sounds more like Knight Rider than anything else, the soundtrack of this film is done by ACDC. So we're going to have a rockin' fucking time next week, and hopefully we can see whether or not Mr. King can actually faithfully do a Stephen King movie. Uh... I think you know what the answer is already if you have watched Maximum Overdrive, but that is a perfect way to end Stephen King month for the Terrible Terror podcast. So, uh, it is available um, on iTunes for rent, Amazon for rent, uh, and I believe it also as well as YouTube. So, if you have never seen Maximum Overdrive, you owe yourself to watch it before you listen to this podcast. 
Uh, I am. This is. There are not many films on this podcast that I would say. You know what? Watch it before you even listen. No, please. Maximum Overdrive is the most like insane Stephen King movie that you can watch. Just from <laughs> who's in it uh, to the way he directs certain things, and he he even even his little cameo in it is so delicious. It's so much fun to watch. So. If you like, I said, if you've never seen it, please find a way to watch it. Uh, it is available to rent, and you can. I know you guys can find it out there somewhere, and you can watch it. Um, just find it. <laughs> so, uh, for next time, we will be definitely talking about Maximum Overdrive. Uh, as always, you can follow the podcast on Twitter. It's t underscore t underscore podcast. You can check us out uh, on Facebook as well. Is on Instagram. Uh, Instagram is Terrible Terror Podcast, Facebook.com slash Terrible Terror Podcast. And uh, you can always email us, Terrible Terror Podcast at gmail.com if you have movie suggestions of things that you would like to see. Uh, we do have a, another theme month that's going to be coming up probably uh, for this podcast uh, in 2017. I think I'm looking like May. That I want to do it. It's not going to be a full month like I said before. Not like this Stephen King month. Because there's two movies that I want to specifically look at. uh, From this actor. Uh, And one of them is completely ridiculous. And the other one's completely fun. So uh, it's worth looking at it. Um, And then uh, that's going to be it I guess for this week. So next time watch uh, Maximum Overdrive. And we'll talk to you then. Bye bye.